I'm going to invite uh, everyone to stand as we read God's Word this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 50. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he, Jesus... Oh, I'm starting the wrong, the wrong verse. Forgive me. No, I'm at the right verse. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Asked the disciples. But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And Jesus sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Amen. Uh, so Tom Holland, uh, Tom Holland, not the movie star Tom Holland, uh, another Tom Holland uh, who's a, a British uh, author, an English author. Uh, he's uh, started his career in journalism and now he writes uh, books about history. Um, he's uh, a guy, I, I got to admire a guy like this. He taught himself Greek and the way he taught himself Greek was he translated Herodotus, who was an ancient Greek historian, one paragraph at a time, like every, every day until he eventually had translated the entire thing. Um, just like a really sharp mind, historical mind. Uh, Tom Holland shares his story in one of his books. He, um, he grew up uh, going to an Anglican church with his mother, and he eventually lost his faith. He was really into dinosaurs, and he didn't see how like dinosaurs fit with the story of the Bible. So he, he just didn't see how it fit, lost his faith. And his, he describes how like, he, his love for dinosaurs ended up changing into this love for ancient empires, Greece, Rome, uh, Persia, and he's ended up making a career of just writing really awesome, easy-to-read books about these ancient histories. But as he like, as the decades started to pile up of him reading about these ancient empires, just the ancient world more generally, he had this this realization. He was like, the more I read about these ancient empires and peoples, the more I read about the Spartans and the Athenians and the Persians and the Romans, man, especially the Romans. Uh, how they would, you know, how they would train their, the Spartans would train their young to, to kill people who were they considered subhuman, or how Julius Caesar would brag about how he would, he killed a million Gauls. Like, he's like, these people just became more and more alien to me. 
you know, this, what, what this was originally, this fascination, they just, these people seem so different than who I am. He's like, they had no, they had no sense, the complete lack of sense that the poor or the weak might have intrinsic value. He's, he just can't find it anywhere. And they just, people, these people seem so, so alien to him. He's like, it's so wild that at that time, it was more noble to inflict suffering than to suffer. And as he's grappling with this, he's like, what is the difference between me and where I'm at and where these ancient peoples were at? He comes to this surprising conclusion. Uh, This guy who's an English atheist, he says, it turns out my belief in God may have faded over the course of my teenage years, but it didn't mean that I'd ceased to be a Christian. The Christian, like what Jesus did, the story of, of, of this book, like it's been so pervasive in the, in the history of the world and of the West that like sensibilities have changed. And, like, and, he, he's, and he like writes a whole book about this. Even those who reject Christianity, he says, are still anchored to its moral sensibilities. So Tom Holland would say, if you're here this morning and you hear Jesus' words in this passage, the greatest of all is the servant of all. If you hear those words and you're like, that sounds like a good, good moral thing to say. Good, compassionate, that's someone I'd want to follow. If you, that's you, then he's like, congratulations, you're a Christian. <laughs> At least in some sense of the word. We shouldn't forget how alien some of these words of Jesus, even though we like them and they're familiar to us, how alien they would have been at the time that he preached them. And that's just the start of the passage. So this, this passage we went through today, it's, uh, it's an enigmatic passage, um, covers a lot of ground. Jesus, he, he zigs and he zags, and what does we think he's going to zag? He zigs again. He, he covers a lot of ground. What, what, what was going on before this? So immediately before this passage, uh, I preached on this at the end of my sermon last week, Jesus, he tells his disciples for the second time, he tells them three times in the Gospel of Mark, it's the second out of three times he tells them his destiny, which is to, uh, to be delivered into the hands of men, to be killed, and then to be raised again. So the path of Jesus is one of suffering, uh, one of humiliation. And after each of the three times that Jesus tells his disciples this, they, it becomes very clear immediately that they don't get it. And the way that in this passage, it's clear they don't get it because Jesus tells them this, and then they go for a long walk to Capernaum. And on the walk, the disciples are arguing about what? About who's the greatest? Um, which is to say, they're just like, it's in one ear, out the other. Jesus is saying, my path, following me, means abandoning greatness and taking the path of lowliness and death. Uh, and they're like arguing with each other about who's, who's great. Uh, and the interesting thing is that the disciples who get it wrong each of these three times, uh, the first time it's Peter, this time it's, it's John, uh, and the next time it's James and John together. So Peter, James, and John, the inner ring, the ones who are closest to Jesus, are the ones who seem to get it the least. So Jesus, in response, he calls together the 12 disciples, and he says this, this, this word that I really zoomed into with the opening, um, that if anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then after that, he does an object lesson. So I'm going to do something a little bit different, something that I, I don't think I've, uh, we've, I've ever seen done in, like, in one of our sermons before. I've, uh, I happen to have a child. All the, all the pastor's kids in the room, if there are any of you here, you're like, oh, gosh. Oh, hi. So this is my son, Jeremiah. Um, the, uh, 
the, so I would have done this with my older son. My older son is two years old. Um, his name's Michael. And uh, it, he's just super shy, though, so it would have been kind of cruel of me to do it with him. So the, the, the child that Jesus probably brought and, and put in front of his disciples was probably o- older than this child. Um, it was probably, probably a toddler or a little bit older. But I think we'll get, get some of the picture here. As you look at the face of my son or the back of his head, uh, I invite you to think about the children in your own life. Your own children, uh, the, or, or if you don't have kids, your nieces, your nephews, kids of your friends, your grandchildren. Uh, think of kids on your block. Uh, the kids we're ho- we hope to minister to at VBS in August. Listen to these words. Jesus held, them, held a child in the midst of them. <laughs> and he said... Whoever receives one such child in Jesus' name receives Jesus himself. And not only do you receive Jesus, but you receive the Father. Later on, he says this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I'm going to give him back. Thanks, Colleen. It uh, be fun to hold him the whole, the, the whole sermon, but no one would remember anything I said. Uh, what is... I'm sorry, kid. Um, oh, he's so cute. Jesus invites us to receive... To, to, you know, after talking about being the servant of all, is the, greatest, the, the greatest of all is a servant. He says, receive children. What does it take to receive children? Uh, uh, and all you parents out there, if you ever have a really hard day parenting, where you're like frustrated, like your kids are misbehaving or whatever, uh, my wife and I have found this thing that we, that's really cathartic, really helpful, and we pull up YouTube and we watch an episode of Super Nanny. Uh, Super Nanny, full episodes are on YouTube. Super Nanny is it's like this mid-2000s reality TV show. Uh, this woman named Joe Frost, who's this, this English... Uh, Nanny, she like goes like this. This shows this this family that's like in complete disarray. Kids are misbehaving. Parents' marriage is falling apart. And she comes into the into the scene, and and then you know shapes up the house. And it's it's cathartic because it's like oh my, I wish my you know, my kids would shape up. Uh, it's it's a great thing to do. Uh, one thing that Joe Frost does in these shows that they always draw attention to, um, you know, in, in the first shots that you know showing this family in disarray, the parents are always like standing. They're yelling at their kids. They're ignoring their kids. Uh, they're not playing with their kids. They're you know they're all these problems. The first thing that Joe Frost does when she enters a home is she goes and, and greets every single child. So she went to one house in one episode. There were I think there were eight or nine kids, and she went to every single one. And for the ones who were little, she would get like down on her knees and she would make eye contact with them. And she would greet them and be like, my name's Joe. What's your name? And we'd just have like a short conversation and we'd greet every single one. It's just a, it was, it's a really beautiful picture to me of, of receiving children. To receive children, you have to forget about yourself a little bit. You have to stop taking your, your big, important adult things so seriously. And you have to lower yourselves to their level, make eye contact with them. And once you start to do that, you begin to realize that the world is actually not really designed for children. Uh, we're, we're, we're training, uh, we're, we're going through potty training with my oldest son right now. I don't know if you guys know this, but the, the toilets at Target are huge. 
They're huge, and they're also really loud and scary. Um, these are just things that I've come to see being a parent. Like, the world is not designed for kids. So what massive difference does it make if we, with the power that, with the, the what, with what, we, with what we have, with what God's been doing us, we set aside our pretensions and we try and make the world a little bit more welcoming for, for children. What does that communicate? As you're thinking about this, I would invite you to think, think this way about greatness and about being a servant and why Jesus, I think, goes to teaching about children like this. Where is the place in your life where you would be the most enraged or impatient or upset if you were interrupted by a child? That place may be the place where you're like the disciples arguing about who's the greatest. So, the clear application of this text, of course, is to come serve in kids' ministry. I, I'm, as like the kids' ministry person, I can't like go through this sermon and not say that. Uh, serve at VBS, what a perfect announcement to pair with this text. So, the, so Jesus teaches them this. He has this child in front of them. And the disciples don't understand. Uh, again. So John, like, I don't know if you're, we're going through this passage, you're like, what was John's response there? So Jesus is like, you know, Receive children, be a servant. And John's like, yeah, but there was this guy over there who was casting out demons in your name, which I, I kind of find it like a funny response from John because it's like a toddler-like response. <laughs> if you ever like try and have a, a conversation with a toddler, like, hey, what did you do today? And they're like, garbage trucks. <laughs> garbage trucks. Like, like John, the apostle John's kind of like, yeah, but this other thing over there. Like what is going on with, with John's response? Um, he... So the, the, the week, last week I preached on this text, the disciples weren't able to cast a demon out of a boy. Um, they were found to be powerless. And, uh, and Jesus comes back with, from, down from the Mount of the Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, um, and he casts out God the demon. The disciples were, weren't able to do it. And now John is asking this question about a guy over there who is casting out a demon. Um, and we can't tell her, but, but it kind of makes me wonder if if the conversation on the way to Capernaum was about what happened and how the, some, of the, some of the disciples weren't able to cast out the demon. Uh, but John, it's like, I can almost, it's like John coming back. And, and all, in the next chapter, by the way, John, James and John ask Jesus if they can have seats at his right and left hand. So they clearly have a big, a big view of themselves. I kind of wonder almost if John was like, eh, you know, it's like, if I was down here, I could have probably cast out the demon. Uh, but you disciples, you know, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, is all you guys, you're fringe. Uh, <laughs> and talking about someone else outside, it's like it, who was casting out demons. It's almost like John's like, you know, we we're self-sufficient. We don't need outsiders' help. We have the authority to tell outsiders to stop. We're great. Jesus responds by flipping the table on John. And the way he does this, I think it's, it's subtle, is he, he flips the table and like, again, consider the child's in front of them. Uh, he, he, he really zeroes in on who the children are. Who are the children? Look at verse 41 with me again. So Jesus, Jesus says, yeah, yeah, don't stop the guy who's casting out demons in my name. Um, that, that's a good thing. They're not, whoever's not against us is for us. And he says this, 
Verse 41, for truly I say to you, whoever gives you, disciple, John, a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now look again with me at verse 37, where Jesus has the the child in front of him. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So these, it's almost like Jesus says the same thing twice in these two verses. I don't know if you caught that. The only thing that's changed is who the child is. So in, in verse 37, the child is the, the, you know, Jesus like receives him, whoever receives him receives me. And in verse 41, Jesus is basically saying, saying, whoever receives you, disciple, whoever gives you a drink of cold water, receives me. Well, won't lose his reward. The disciples are equated with children. John, who's thinking, who's arguing about who's the greatest, he's like a child, is what Jesus is saying. In chapter 10, Jesus goes on to explicitly call the disciples children. They argue about greatness, but they're not great. They need to be received no less than little children do. Um, The world's not designed for them just like it's not designed for kids. I don't know where you're at this morning, coming through these doors, joining us in worship, but this is one of the central things that you need to know today, that we need to remind ourselves of, is that fundamentally before the face of God, We are children. We are dependent. We're weak. We need to come to him as our father. And we we rejoice like that that God the Father and Jesus, that that we're embraced, that our sins are forgiven, um, that we're healed, uh, that his power is made perfect in our weaknesses. And then because Jesus so welcomes us as the servant of all, So we are called to go do the same. That's the starting point of the Christian walk. So then Jesus, like I said, you expect him to zag, and then he zigs again. He goes, he moves on from there to talk about sin and hell. Right? So we, um, so Tom Holland, you know, he talks about how how I opened like the servant of all, but we like that part. And then he moves to this other part talking about sin and hell. And it's like, whoa, this is, this is the, this, that, that's the part of this, this talk that ancient audiences probably would have found a lot more palatable. They wouldn't have found the first part, the servant of all part, palatable. But they would have found this part about, ju- about justice and judgment a lot more palatable. Jesus offends both of us. He offends the ancient audience and he offends us. Uh, and he, he, he says when it comes to sin, the stakes are really, really high. Don't call, you know, if don't cause little ones to stumble, don't cause them to sin. Don't cause, don't, don't cause them to fall into unrighteousness. Uh, and what, who's he talking about here with little ones? Who are the little ones? Is it the child that was like he was putting in front of him? I just, you know, I think it's obviously some of that because I just did that with my son Jeremiah with you all. Was he talking about his disciples? If he caused one of the other disciples to sin. Or is he talking about the outsiders? Like, those little ones are the, the ones who are outside, who are doing things in Jesus' name. It's ambiguous. And I think it's, the answer is yes. Don't cause any of these groups of people to sin. And Jesus then goes on and, and gives his teaching, which he is, uh, we first find in the Sermon on the Mount, in the, 
the Gospel of Matthew. If your, your hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. If your foot's causing you to sin, cut it off. If your eye is ca- causing you to sin, gouge it out. For it's better for you to go enter into the kingdom of heaven maimed than for you to be tossed whole into hell. And this, the, the, the teaching here is, is basically just to be willing to take drastic steps in your life to the point of causing extreme discomfort in order to, keep, in order to, to, to avoid falling into sin, to stay away from sin. And Jesus, he, you know, he, he talks about hell a lot in this passage. And this is actually, as I look through the Gospels, this is the time that Jesus is the most, gives like the most visceral description of hell. And, this is, and Jesus also talks about hell a lot, by the way. Uh, a lot more than, than any other New Testament, author, New Testament speaker. Uh, he, he says, hell is where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Uh, he, the, the word for hell is Gehenna. Uh, Gehenna was a, to the southwest of Jerusalem, there was a big valley uh, that was a garbage dump where there'd be fires, and you can just imagine like how it smelled, like people would, would throw their garbage out there and be burning it. Um, this is the image that Jesus goes to for hell. Death decay, worms not dying, fire. That valley also, by the way, before it was made into a garbage dump, it's back in like hundreds of years beforehand, it was the place where evil kings would sacrifice children, which creates this interesting contrast between the way of Jesus, the servant of all, receiving children, and the way of sin, the way of hell, the way of child sacrifice. The cost of following Jesus, Jesus is like, your sin is a really, really, really big deal. He calls us to cut out our sin, and that in doing so, we'll feel like maiming ourselves. but it's far better to limp into his kingdom than to walk into the kingdom of darkness in this life and in the next. So for you, those of you who are, who've been here, who know about Jesus, it's just, I'm not gonna, I, where are you neglecting this call in your life? Where's the area where you'd rather be comfortable than come face to face with your sin, take drastic measures, be willing to be maimed. And the maiming, by the way, I should have said, the maiming's not literal, it's figurative. None of Jesus' disciples actually cut off their hands or their feet. It's a take drastic measures teaching. And with that, when I, when I put that in front of you, for, never forget this. The one who's, who's saying these words? This is coming from the one who says that whenever a sinner repents, a chorus of angels rejoices in heaven. That with the thing that you, you're, you, you want to just keep doing, that you're comfortable with, like Jesus is saying, when you lay that down, like the heavens rejoice when you turn away from that and you turn to me instead. Also remember this, the one who's saying it's better for you to be maimed and come into the kingdom of heaven. This is the one who was maimed for you. He's the only one that we can trust to make us whole. So for Jesus, he starts with compassion and he ends with talking about righteousness, about living um, in a way that is not sinful. For Jesus, compassion and righteousness, they complement one another. He talks about them both back to back here. 
uh, something that uh, clever pastors do, you've probably seen, is they do spectrums, you know? They're like, you know, it's, this is one way that the world is, and this is the other way that the world is, but Jesus and me and we, we're right here in the middle, right? Uh, no spectrum here, folks. It's just both, absolutely both. It's compassion and it's righteousness. And if you're missing one or the other, you're completely missing the point. And if navigating that sounds challenging to you, then you're paying attention. Which is why we're dependent upon God's, upon Jesus' spirit. Uh, compassion and righteousness, they meet in the person of Jesus, who's perfectly holy, but, but compassionate towards sinners like you and me. The cross is the place where compassion and righteousness meet. A hold, the Holy One, the Holy God, laying His life down for us. So in conclusion, Jesus uh, zigs again, and he, he ends with these, kinda, these, these mysterious words about being salted with fire. He says, all will be salted with fire. It seems like this fire is different than the unquenchable fire he's referring to earlier. Uh, salt in the Bible is generally a good thing. It's a preservative. It's a sign of faithfulness and longevity. Uh, it's sprinkled on uh, covenant sacrifices in the Old Testament. The, the covenant of God with his people is called the covenant of salt, which is to say it endures. Um, it has flavor to it. Uh, so where have we been? Uh, how does, what does that have to do with saltiness? True greatness is humbling yourself in service, like in, as, as in receiving a child, as the Father and Jesus welcomed you. And also, Jesus calls us to live righteously, to give no quarter to sin, uh, even if it means, be, means being marked out as maimed, as Jesus lived righteously and was maimed for you. So what I would say to you is if, you live, if we seek to live this way, by the power of God's Spirit, holding both these things, compassion and righteousness together, it will feel like we are being thrown into an oven some days. If we seek to be this compassionate, there will be days where we're taken advantage of. There will be days where we're tired and we don't want to do anymore. Where we can't unwind. If we seek to live righteously as God calls us to in Jesus, we'll be scorned as killjoys, fanatics, fundamentalists, and in both of these things, when we've realized that we're not compassionate enough, we're not righteous enough, all these things will come face to face with ourselves, with our own weakness, our inability to be compassionate, our, in our own sinfulness. And what I would say is that here, in this place where we're broken down, realizing our own weakness, really where it feels like God is breaking us down and putting us back together again, that is where we are being salted with fire. Being purified, made into something that is preserving the world. This place, I don't know if you, like, as I'm going through that, if you're thinking about challenges in your own life, relationships, that place, that where God is breaking you down and building you back up again, that's your saltiness. That's the jewel of Christ in you. From where you come comes your greatest strength and power, your courage, your ability to serve. It's from the place where you feel weak, where you know you need to repent and you're sinful. And it's from there that Christ's peace flows into the world, not out of our pretensions at greatness. In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen.